I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Cons Minds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 55, we read Return of the Strong Gods by R.R. Reno, published in 2019. Joining us this week is a, we have a special guest, Gerald Rossillo, who is the uh, editor of University Bookman and a frequent writer on Catholic intellectual tradition. He's edited two volumes of work by Christopher Dawson and is the author of Postmodern Imagination of Russell Kirk. Gerald, welcome. Welcome. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Corey. Great to be here. For uh, this week, we're reading R.R. Reno's book. Um, Reno was born in 1959 in Maryland and earned a bachelor's degree from Haverford College in 1983. After earning a doctorate in religious ethics from Yale in 1990, he taught theology at Creighton University till 2010. The following year, Reno became the editor of First Things, an intellectual Christian journal published monthly. He's also the author or co-author of eight books, of which today's selection is the latest. He was raised in the Episcopal Church, but converted to Roman Catholicism in 2011. So like many of our authors, Mr. Reno sees a West in decline. He says, our societies are dissolving. Economic globalization shreds the social contract. Identity politics disintegrates civic bonds. Anti-Western multiculturalism deprives people of their cultural inheritance. Mass migration reshapes the social landscape. Courtship, marriage, and family no longer form our moral imaginations. Borders are porous, including even those that separate men from women. So how did we get here? Well, Reno believes that American elites steered us wrong in their eagerness to never again allow the rise of totalitarian impulses in the aftermath of World War II. He says, we continue to define ourselves culturally as anti-totalitarian, anti-fascist, anti-racist, and anti-nationalist. He says he calls this atmosphere of opinion that sustains these anti-imperatives the post-war consensus. So the post-war consensus is something that obviously developed in the wake of World War II. He says the post-war left fixed its attention on moral freedom and cultural deregulation, seeing them as natural extensions of the anti-authoritarian imperative, while the post-war right focused on economic freedom and market deregulation for similar anti-totalitarian reasons. Openness, weakening, and disenchantment are at play in post-war sociology, psychology, and even theology, he says. And the reason, well, is to prevent the return of the strong gods. What are the strong gods? Strangely, and I can't wait to hear what you guys think, but strangely, I, I feel like he was vague on this front, but he does say, strong gods are the object of men's love and devotion, the sources of passions and loyalties that unite societies. They can be timeless, like the matrimony of ascent, he says. It can be traditional, like king and country and patriotism. They can be modern ideologies or charismatic leaders, and in fact, can even be destructive. It could be militarism, fascism, communism, racism, anti-Semitism, as well as 
uh, beneficent, constructive, like the American Constitution, the American founding. So his thesis is that he wants to show how anti-fascism and anti-totalitarianism inspired a general theory of society characterized by a fundamental judgment, which is whatever is strong, like strong loves and strong truths, well, these all lead to oppression. The post-war era saw a shift in our metaphysical dreams to openness and lightness of being in response to the decades of catastrophe in the 20th century. He says, liberty and prosperity require the reign of weak loves and weak truths. Gerald, you recommended this book to us. We know you've thought a lot about it. How, how would you distill Reno's main thesis here? Yeah, I, I think I think he's got two things going on in this book. The first uh, is what you referred to earlier, which is the post-war consensus, right? Which is, which I think, I think he's absolutely right about. I think it is dissolving. I think that the joinder of a certain kind of American patriotism with an anti-communism coming out of the war and a real reasonable, as he, as he says, an understandable fear of strong passions sort of guided the country up until we can call it the 70s, we can call it the early 80s, uh, where the the interests of the right in economic deregulation and opposition to communism in favor of capitalism uh, developed an alliance with uh, the post-war left, which wanted moral and individual deregulation. And so that took a little bit of time to unwork, but now we're seeing the results that we're left without any strong anchors for community or the country, and we're looking for something else. I think his second thesis uh, is one that you alluded to, which is what are these strong gods that either, and sometimes he says that the current situation fears their return. Sometimes he seems to indicate that some of the passions that are animating our current conversation are themselves strong gods. And so he goes a little bit of back and forth on what the current situation is, but I think his general thesis is the post-war consensus dissolved in part because we do need strong gods. We need things that animate us and that form our loyalties. And the question I think that this book leaves a little bit open, uh, and I combine it with his earlier book called Resurrection of the Christian, uh, the idea of a Christian society, which he published three years ago now, four years ago, uh, is what is that situation going to look like going forward? Uh, and are we going to have a strong God or gods that re-found us, that re-animate our loyalties, or are we going to uh, continue to dissolve? And then I'll, I'll add a subsidiary thesis he has, which really is overlaid on this, which is what is the role of what we now might term progressivism uh, in that dissolution and what role are they playing uh, or is that movement playing in reforming uh, national loyalties? Yeah, I, I think um, part of the, the I had some of the same questions about, all right, we're reading about strong gods, you know, well, okay, what are they? And I thought that was, it, it was like in uh, Alistair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, I thought the end of it was going to have a list of virtues and uh, it didn't, Right. you know, I mean, it, it, it told us a few things and it's, good book you know but it i thought oh this was going to give us a because he, he actually referenced a lot of lists of virtues in that book too you know just didn't particularly adopt any of them um and so here i mean right. obviously there's a few things he does name and I, you know i think the american founding is one that is 
that has been the strong God in American history, you know, but also, I mean, you could also say the idea of liberty has been the strong God in American history. And this is um, in part a book about liberty gone too far and liberty as sort of a, a weak God, you know, as, as the anti. So it's, it's, that's part of, I think, always the challenge in, in American conservatism is, is that um, some of our conservative impulses are against the strong gods here, which is, I, I think one of the things that makes us different from other countries, whereas, you know, you, you'd have conservative traditions in the old world that are less uh, classically liberal, more about that, that nationalism and, and also some of the other bad stuff too. So I, I think, yeah, I think we yeah. get, um, there's that confusion um, about what it is, but I, I think it also just gets back to something you sometimes hear in politics is you can't beat, you can't beat something with nothing, you know? And I think we've been trying to beat something with nothing for, you know, 75 years now. And it, it, we beat communism with nothing because there was more something there. You know, there was more, <laughs> we still had the residual um, strong gods of American patriotism mixed in with it, as you said. But now as after we've beaten fascism, we've beaten communism for the most part. Now we now we've sort of got the nothing. I mean, you know, we'll find out in November if nothing can beat something. But <laughs> right, right. Uh, here, it's. No, I, I think that's a I big think, question. Yeah, no, I think that's. I think that's right, and I, I think that one of the things that he describes in this book, uh, when he goes through some of these therapies of disenchantment chapter, where he talks about Karl Popper and Norman Brown and other folks about their reluctance, they're trying to refound. Uh, defenses of liberty and other virtues on a more weak basis right because one of the one of the results of the post-war consensus is that although we did win in the sense that we triumphed over communism the method we took to get there was basically dissolving uh all of the intra-national loyalties that we had you know that, that there was an effort to make people generically American as opposed to their particular background where they came from. There was an effort to dissolve any strong religious uh, bonds, especially as they were related to politics. There was an effort to dissolve even uh, local and state allegiances where people had particular traditions in the in places where they grew up. And I think you get to the victory over communism. And to your point, we did we did defeat a great adversary but we were left with well what do we do now uh and i think what you get uh coming out of the late 80s into the 90s is this trying to figure out what it is that we are for and i think when you get to his chapter talking about some of the educational trends he has this 2007 i think harvard document that tries to combine tradition in a certain sense with critical thinking you get some of these efforts to try and decide what we are going to then be devoted to. And I think to your point, it's unclear what that is uh, because the, the, certainly the educational establishment is so ingrained in this idea that we can't be too dedicated to anything. We have to be careful because that might inspire passions that are destructive that we haven't really gained loyalty to anything going forward. And I think that that's, that it's, that's really interestingly a fight within liberalism 
because you have old time liberals and, you know, we can refer to things in the newspapers even in recent months where senior liberal figures are criticized or cast out of their jobs for not being sufficiently progressive. Mm-hmm. Conservatives are and are not part of that debate. We are in the sense that parts of the, that debate cast us as the villains, although this is really an intra-liberal argument. But more importantly, and I think what, what Reno is getting at, you know, we we have the ability to reform those strong gods, hopefully on a better basis. I want to get to Christianity as a special case. You know, maybe we'll talk about that in a bit. But conservatives, although we were part of obviously part of that post-war consensus, there was always a stream of thought that new liberalism couldn't survive. And uh, Russell Kirk certainly is one of those figures, in, even in the 60s, looking to the end of liberalism, that what this rationalism, this technocratic way of governing, this sort of relatively bloodless form of governance that couldn't inspire loyalty necessarily was going to fade and what would come after it. And, and conservatives are well positioned for that debate. I'm not sure if we're doing such a great job of it now, but we certainly are able to uh, have the resources that from our own intellectual tradition to to provide an answer to that, at least an answer to some of the uh, tendencies that Reno mentions in his book. So it's an interesting dual conversation that's happening, both within the right about how to deal with the current presidency, what will happen after the presidency, if, if anything, in November, and also watching liberalism really shed its uh, sort of elderly post-war leaders into this new progressivism that sponsors some of the new gods that Reno talks about in, uh, in his book. That's a good insight, and I, 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 it seemed to me that that Reno here was also, as you said, Kirk was also tapping into the kind of the same same issues as Patrick Deneen, and and uh, but what was interesting to me about this about Reno here is he he explicitly says it's not a crisis of liberalism. In other words, like maybe it's maybe he there's a de, you know a departure from Kirk and Deneen, but he he mostly seems to think that the world changed post-war there was something special about that and rather than you know as Deneen said liberalism became true to itself and that's why it failed instead it looks like you know Reno saying well he seems to imply in the bulk of the sort of the, the middle chapters that that there's a almost a a grand bargain between the the post-war left and the post-war right for on the left the cultural and the deregulation of morality around the right, the deregulation of the market. And I think several of our authors and you just, and what you just described and also Kirk have kind of keyed in on this, but what was it's different, I guess it seemed to me about, <laughs> about the way that Reno approached it is he, he, he seemed to, uh, his discussion of, let's say freed uh, Milton Friedman. I, I was a little off putting to me, to be honest with you, because, because mm. I, I feel like the motivation is, uh, you know, his motivations and let's say Camus motivations, just, I didn't find that persuasive that they, that they were sort of coming together in a grand bargain to, to keep this, keep the strong gods from, from emerging. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I feel like uh, Fr- Friedman's motivation was more, he had serious problems with the, like the communist programs and right. I think this is where a little bit where I think where his where Reno's defini- uh, vague definition of strong gods falls short a little bit. He says 
The political imperative has remained constant. We must drive out the strong gods from the West by relativizing them, putting them into their historical context, critiquing, critiquing their xenophobic, patriarchal, cisgender, and racist legacies, and showing how they are products of a sociobiological process that produces in us a reptilian tribal mind. Now, I'll be the first to say, I mean, that sort of warmed over postmodernism is a complete joke, and I, I agree, and it, it deserves almost its own exposition. But I wonder right. what you think about this. If, if you know, it's sort of like if he's arguing that these dim critical theories were invented as a mm-hmm. post-war spasm to prevent totalitarianism, mm-hmm. does, he doesn't really give us a better explanation of what the strong gods are and why they wouldn't lead to totalitarianism. In fact, as far as I can tell, he never explicitly says that totalitarianism is bad. It's kind of like, I don't like the departure because it's, it's, uh, it's led to all these social ills, which again, like, you know, Kirk picks up on and Deneen and others, but does he, I don't know. You tell me, do you think Reno kind of accepts as a fait accompli that we, we must have ideologies and you just got to have to learn to live with the, I mean, again, this, this is where I think that it would be helpful if we had a, I guess a a richer definition of strong gods, because if what we mean is we don't really actually want to defend against communism or fascism, or do we mean like, no, we still need heroes. You know, we don't need to tear down statues of the founders or that sort of thing. I don't know. What do you think? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I I think he just, you're right. I'd answer that in two ways, really. I think that he, he sees something that some, some other conservative commentators have seen, which is, the 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 bargain for defeating communism was in retrospect probably still worth it of course but also problematic right because if you deregulate in the set we could talk about what that means whether whether the economy is truly deregulated but if you if you posit that the free market understood as individuals entering the marketplace without any other non-market uh, loyalties that are lasting, that does dovetail nicely into the post-war liberal view of the human individual without any non-autonomous or non-chosen loyalties, right? Of neighborhood or background or religion or what have you. And so you have you have both sides uh, essentially defending the same construct. And I think that's where he's getting this Camus and Friedman analysis. I, I agree with you that I think Friedman had more direct challenges that he wasn't really concerned about what Reno was concerned about. And in fact, wrote a famous essay about why saying why I am not a conservative. And so I don't think he would put himself on the right yeah. uh, in the way that, that Reno does. But I think his, his thesis is, look, if you create an autonomous individual, either for market purposes or non-market purposes, both of those were, chal- were ways to deal with these strong gods. And they ended up getting together. And in a weird way, currently, where they get together, and this is where I think maybe Reno's thesis has, has a little uh, more substance in, in, in terms of being able to see it in the real world, is that that, indivi- that individual stripped of non-market loyalties and stripped of non-chosen obligations is really at the mercy of either corporations or marketing or these sort of uh, education or elite sponsored ideologies. And you're right, he doesn't really give us a list. I think I read through the book a couple of times looking for, well, what would be the good strong gods as it were, or the bad ones? 
and the, the one of the closest places he gets is it towards the end of the book where he describes uh you know the strong gods are not golden idols or characters in ancient mythologies they are whatever has the power to inspire love love of the divine love of truth love of country love of family and the strong gods are not necessarily public or political and then he refers to the desert monks of early christianity or, or mathematicians really focused on uh the universal universal language of mathematics uh and so he he i think what he's trying to do is say that that those uh those things that take us out of ourselves that create a community or precisely those things that the current ideologies uh try to break us of now i think we can I would I would part company with him a little bit on that, which maybe we would talk about. But I think that's where he's trying to go with this idea of the post-war consensus being similar on the right and the left. I think his more his stronger point is that once you have broken those obligations and those non-chosen loyalties, you're at you're at the mercy of these other ideologies, which could themselves be strong gods, or the sense I get from the book is that they're really instruments for the people who were in power to remain in power. Mm. Uh, and, and they don't, one of the, one of the, when I was writing my book a million years ago on Kirk, one of the things that struck me was an article by David Reef, uh, who, who, who argued that multiculturalism, which was then, you know, prominent in the educational establishments and colleges and so on was, was not actually a radical, ideology at all it was very comfortable with corporate culture because corporate culture wants consumers and if they can just reduce every culture to what you can buy and restaurants you can go to and so on that's soft that's a you know sort of a weak god in, in reno's terminology so those two things go together the seemingly radical educational establishment and corporate boardrooms were both perfectly comfortable with the same ideology and i think that's something what he's getting at here although it's not as explicit in this book as it is in some of his other writings that's a good point. And the distinction between chosen and non-chosen allegiances, I think, is is a good one. Because the this the, the supporters of this open society, it's really that I, I find a lot of people have visceral reactions against non-chosen allegiances. I mean, people, people on especially on the left, I guess probably some on the libertarian right, too, just the idea that you're loyal to your town your family, your, you know, some group that you didn't choose to be in, but you're in it and, and it's, well, it's mine. I'm, I'm, I'm loyal to this group, but why, you know, is it objectively better? You know, can you, can you measure a way that Pennsylvania is better than New Jersey or whatever, you know? <laughs> and I don't know if you can, but it's, 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 that's, I mean, these are like, you know, the building blocks of patriotism too. I mean, that's why some people, when they talk about American exceptionalism say, well, of course this is an exceptional nation. And it's also, my favorite nation. I love it. And other people were like, but you know, Canada's cool too. What's the problem? You know? And it, it, that, I right. think that that's really the a big success of the, of the, the post-war consensus is that that idea is out there that they, I mean, it's a, they've been successful at it. It's not a good thing, but it's, you know, it's, it's something that we've dissolving those bonds is pretty easy because that's what society keeps telling us to do. You know, it's that any sort of, chauvinism or nationalism is uh not not just passe because of what it might lead to but also just inscrutable to a lot of people who have completely abandoned it they it's it's right. it's got to the point where it's completely 
not understandable to a large section of the population. And I don't know whether, whether religion is a non-chosen allegiance, I think I would say it is because I, I, and I think the founding fathers believed it that way too. And that it's sort of a one, as we all search for religious truth, we're sort of compelled to join the one that we think is true. And it's often the one we grew up in, but it's, you know, it's, I, I would count that along with other non-chosen allegiances. It's, it's not as simple as, you know, choosing any sort of consumer good or what, or, or club, you know, it's, it's more, uh, it's more transcendent, but you said you wanted to talk some about, uh, Christianity and how that works with this. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And, and I think that, that where, where these things sort of combine a little bit where, I, where I think Rusty has, has, has been subject to some critique is where does Christianity fit in? Uh, to this post-war consensus in this American society. And uh, you know, it's something that that a lot of conservative writers are wrestling with and certainly I've written about here and there. And it, it goes something like the following. You're right, that, that, that we have these non-chosen obligations, including faith and you know, the country that we grew up in. And these are natural in our families and our uh, other backgrounds that we uh, sort of enter into. And... Uh, these are properly objects of affection. And in fact, it's hard to see, and I think there's been more work on this done, done more recently, it's really hard to see us really th being able to think or exist outside those traditions. They formed us even before we we're aware of it. And so the idea of uh, a Rawlsian individual sitting out there in the abstract deciding which country is better or which social arrangement would be better is almost impossible because we're, we're always operating within a tradition. But I think where, where, some, of the, where some of this interacts with our own nation is that uh, it doesn't need to be, or these traditions don't need to be self-contained. And so you have these dangerous passions of an introverted nationalism, for example, or uh, uh, racial solidarity, Without, which don't really provide themselves with their own self-critique. And I think where Christianity comes in is that it, it's, it's extra national, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it provides a standard against which to judge conduct, your own conduct, and to change your own life. Uh, and it can be political, but it need not be. And I think that that, uh, and that I think is one, and he you know, puts this in the book in Europe that a lot of, uh, elite opinion is directed against Christianity because that is the continent's strong gods, but not other religious traditions that are coming in through immigration elsewhere in Europe, because that is not as strong an influence. And I think there is a sense in this new ideological world that that, that Christianity is a danger precisely because it provides a standard of judgment that is both political and not. Because a lot of the ideologies that have replaced this post-war consensus, uh, either uh, an extreme sort of global capitalism or uh, variants of progressivism don't really have that critique. And again, it fits very nicely in with the subjective individualism that certain uh, right-wing thinkers as well as the left form, because what, what ultimately ends up happening is that you have no judgment other than your own. There's no standard against which you can be uh, condemned or judged or mm -hmm. thought that you should be acting differently than you do. And as it turns out, people don't 
function well in that, in that environment. They don't choose well no. uh, sometimes. Um, and, uh, you know, need some uh, formative structures around them. And so I think that, that the question of Christianity is an interesting one because in, in the one, one sense, it, I guess, Rusty would include that as a strong God. Uh, but on the other hand, it served an interesting function, both of loyalty as well as critique in our own uh, national tradition of politics. Yeah, and those are all super interesting points. I, I kind of wish he would have developed that just a little bit more because, as you described it, I think, I mean, this is this is a running theme that Kyle and I have had on this podcast, which is, you know, how, sorry, again, going back to Milton Friedman, you know, like, I, I, I feel that his motivation is sort of like, let's let people have their religion, but there is a worry that, you know, who gets to decide it. And I think, you know, having the strong gods return, my, my real question is, how how do you have a return of the strong gods while still kind of protecting against what the the paupers of the world were actually worried about which is mm-hmm. you know you have reno who's who's a catholic well i'm not catholic and i don't necessarily want our you know right. and i think milton Friedman right. would say choose on your own that's the only that's the, that's the only thing we can do we i i guess this is kind of my critique that i was talking about earlier too is like i, I don't feel like milton Friedman was getting at the fact that his motivation wasn't let's get rid of strong gods. His motivation was let's make sure people can have their own strong gods and that there's yep. not one yep. over overarching sort of dark cloud that keeps everyone from yep. pursuing their own interests and values and, and exercising their religious freedom and so forth. But, yeah. I think, I think where he says, where he says Milton Friedman's an enemy of transcendence. I, I, I think Camus was, and I think that's true. Yeah. But I, I, I don't think I think Friedman was just wasn't really thinking about transcendence. You know, it wasn't his. Yeah, it wasn't in his. Yeah, uh, you know, his bailiwick. I think that's right. I think he, he was. I think Camus, yeah, Camus more than Camus more than Friedman for sure. Uh, no, I think that's right, and and I think you're you're voicing I think a very uh, common sense objection, right? Because, uh, and this this again goes a little bit to some of the ambiguity of. Uh, Reno's analysis of the strong gods, because one could argue, and I think he does a little bit of this uh, in the book, is that I think I think one way of reading Reno's book is to say the post-war consensus, which valued uh, on its terms freedom as against collectivism or against totalitarianism, has collapsed. But what has emerged is not a, uh, at least in some views a hyper individualism, sort of a more Friedman than Friedman view, now that we have additional technology and global capitalism is much stronger than it was in Friedman's day. And we can we can ex- extend our world of choice further than you could in the 50s or 60s or 70s. That's one way of looking at it. But I think that what Reno is saying, at least in some of these other passages and in an earlier book, which I'll quote from in a second, that we are facing a new totalitarianism, right? Where the strong gods are not Christianity and the nation, but the fluidity of reality, right? That your subjective choice can reach uh, even to your own nature, that there is no boundary, and that these strategies are being used by groups that don't have either your best interests or any sort of uh, common good at heart. And so while 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 well, I agree with you to say, to say that Friedman and maybe to a lesser extent Kemu, but certainly Friedman in the American context were saying, well let's let's expand the realm of choice. 
I think what the American experiment was able to design is a relatively, you know, with, with I think certain very big gaps, at least the, the, the structure of saying, okay, you want to, you know, be loyal to Pennsylvania and have Pennsylvania do certain things differently than Kentucky or New York, that's fine. And you want to worship as you wish, that's fine. Uh, within a political structure that guaranteed certain rights as well as a certain common understanding of what those rights consist of. But now you're, we're entering a world where even the notion of rights, even the notion of what religious freedom might be are being dissolved. And they're being dissolved in the name of other rights, like sort of equality or, uh, or other kinds or uh, other kinds of freedoms that unlike one could argue the earlier forms, at least in their best light, need to be managed, need to be governed by elites. And so we are in fact, potentially entering a totalitarian phase or, or an authoritarian phrase, just we may not be recognizing it. And here's this great passage in his earlier book uh, on Christian society, where he talks about sort of what we're, what we're talking about, which is you have this, this new era that's leaving behind older ideas of constraint or political argument or rationality. And uh, he says that, that what earlier generations took for granted, we must decide, for example, to have children or not, should I end my life rather than endorse suffering? Sort of that the conventions that under which we operated, which you know, uh, Kyle and Corey, I would argue, would make some of the freedoms that Friedman was talking about even possible. He says in our post-conventional society, there is no end to open questions. Well, why is that a problem? Well, he goes on to say, well-educated people are often prepared to deal with these open questions. People who are good at talking tend to succeed in social systems and encourage talking things through. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that is the, a missing piece of, uh, of the discussion we've been having, having, which is a lot of these new strong gods or these new ideologies really benefit people who like to talk for a living, who work in symbolic logic, who aren't like, you know, your normal everyday Americans who work and raise families and, mm. you know, don't have time to sit and talk about books like this. Uh, and so unlike the earlier sort of post-war consensus where if you didn't really want to participate in Friedman or reading Camus or whatever, you didn't have to. There was a, there was a set of conventions that still allowed you freedom uh, and a, a, a relatively tolerable civic society. Whereas now we're, we're, we're bombarded with a set of uh, rhetorical terms and demands that are changing and require a lot of concentration and thought and dealing with uh, nuances and constantly facing questions that a generation ago would have been uh, obviously settled, maybe in ways we like, maybe in ways we didn't like, but at least understood. And now we're in an open field. And some people may think that's great. I think what Reno is saying is a little bit of caution that that's not really great for everybody. Yeah, that's a great insight. And, and obviously he's he's also given us an explanation of why we've seen this rise of, of populism. And, you know, he says, mm -hmm. Trump's wall is a symbol of closure, not openness. Trump's promise right. to rip up free trade agreements and protect American industries. You know, his message is, I will defend you, not I will open things up. America is for right. Americans, not diversity is our strength, you know, or whatever. And, uh, you know, I think that his, we, we didn't spend a lot of time on this, but the, 
Reno's kind of critique of globalization and the fetishizing of diversity and identity and obviously um, open borders and immigration. And I, I think you've given us a really good insight because I think that's right because uh, in terms of the talking and, and the interest in working through issues, because I think, I think you're right. Reno's almost saying that populism is sort of the response for, from people who either are not interested in talking or that's just not, that, that's just not their mode of, of communication mm-hmm. or whatever their mode of communication is. I, yeah. I'm so, I, I don't know how to express my anger. And so I'm just going to go out and I'm going to vote for Donald Trump and, and we're going to, right. We're going to smash the table and see. Right. see. <laughs> well, I think part, part of it is they don't like that, that part of it is yes, that, that they don't know how, but part of it is that they're, they're tired of being talked at. Yeah. For yeah. Right. They're just tired of being told what, that everything they believed was false and that they now are required to believe in a new set of things. And the fact that their jobs are disappearing and their towns are destroyed. Well, you didn't do those anyway, because you can go choose another one and you can go yeah. move here. Or, or what you valued wasn't important. And, uh, and so I think that there's a lot to that. I think that there, there, there is a, a gap, I think in uh, this analysis of populism, which is of course that, that, that the, uh, post-war consensus did, did not include everyone and that there are certain, you know, I, I think that the failure of uh, a certain strain of conservatism really to reach out to traditional communities uh, like African-Americans and others that could have been allies, I think were a little bit sidelined. And so that the, the diversity and other kinds of movements, I think, speak to some real injustices. But I think his overall point is even if that were the case, the people who are governing that don't have anybody's best interest in mind except themselves. And that the language can be is a is a tool of power and is favored in our society. Whereas the populist movements are saying, wait a minute, there are other kinds of ways to express political allegiance. There are other kinds of ways to express communities and, and loves and strong gods without having to listen to, to you tell us that everything that we believed was was either somehow wrong or unjust. And, you know, people, to, to, to the point you were making before by offering something with nothing, people don't like to hear that. And people don't like to hear that, that you have to join this political society because the world in which you and your parents and grandparents lived in was awful and you all are terrible. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and that's not a way to build a political community. And I think that's, that's a direction where the post-war consensus, I think, having dissolved, is still trying to find its way that there's there's language that is hopeful and is unifying and is uh dedicated to moving upward and then there's language that uh that Mina refers to in his book that goes downward that explains every kind of non-chosen obligation or alliance as somehow a reflection of some base desire and you know there's it remains to be seen but uh there's one path at least seems to me to, to be more uh, hopeful and less prone to disaster than the other. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I th- I, the, as we're getting towards the end of the episode here, the one, one line to, uh, in the final chapter of the book that stood out at me was uh, when the open society becomes an enemy of shared loves, when critical intelligence wages total war against our anchoring convictions, our spiritual, cultural, and political consensus becomes anti-human. I think that that is in line with what you were saying before. I mean, people, 
have lived human lives and these allegiances are part of that. And it's, and as he says, and throughout the book, it's natural to, to love something. And when you get people on both, in both parties in charge of whatever political system you're a part of saying, yeah, that's, that's not important. The thing, the thing you think is important is dumb and it's actually bad, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Now it's become even worse. You know, it's become evil. And he, he, he also talked about how like a lot of the post-war consensus was built on anti-fascism, but the farther we've gotten from fascism, the more frightened of it, the consensus is. And that seems crazy. We beat fascism pretty badly. Right. I mean, it's not coming back. And I mean, it, I shouldn't say never say never, but I mean, there's no evidence that it's coming back. And, you know, but then, you know, the president sends a mean tweet and people are talking about Adolf Hitler again. And it's like that. We are so far from that, that it is, it's weird. It's like being afraid of monsters under the bed. You know, at this right, point. right. I, I attribute that and to me. And now I'll sound like an old fogey conservative. I, I attribute that to just as I often tweet, nobody remembers anything anymore. Yeah. Nobody knows anything. <laughs> and when you when you get a generation of people or two generations of people who uh, and this and I'll, I'll include although I'm a, more of a Gen Z person I'll include the boomers in this you know you have people who have uh, in part because of the the trends Reno describes who have gotten rid of all of their other obligations who consider themselves autonomous individuals who don't know what their history is or why it matters and so when when they're faced with a dissolving culture, right? They go to, they're looking for some kind of transcendent meaning. And to your point, some of them find it in this, in this sort of opposition to fascism as a way to, to, to organize their political and intellectual lives, but without a lot of context as to what that might mean or what it has meant, uh, or if there are other obligations or loyalties that are also deserving of their attention. I, because you're right, it's a, it's it is somewhat astonishing to me, uh, you know, seeing some of what's happening in the news, just sort of the indiscriminate judgments mm-hmm. that are being made. And part of that is just because it's a group of people. Part of that is, but part of that is because it's not thought out, and there are very few people saying, "Wait a minute, you know, we have to we w- let's make some distinctions here. Let's look at what the history actually says. Let's look at what values we want to propose." Instead, it's a lot of just this is. You know, we're against fascism and anything I don't like must therefore be fascist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think these are such important questions to, to work through, too, because as I read this and, and totally agree, agree with you, I also worry that I, I don't really want to see us. I mean, the post-war consensus has some value. I don't want to see us like wad up the you know free trade in right. a ball and throw it in the trash either. So, right. so right. How, do, how do we how do we balance these things? But um gerald it's been a real pleasure thanks so much for joining us you have any last word no well thank you guys for thank you guys for having me on this is really great all right yep great that's reno catch us next time